The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few minutes of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1. If not necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are the God of history, and that you are the God who controls the winds, the weather. You are the God who is in control of the details of life. Father, we know that there's a purpose behind this uh, tremendous cataclysm that has hit this nation. And it is part of a series of catastrophes that have come our way uh, that are designed, I believe, in your will to gain our, the attention of this nation, to put our focus on eternal realities and off of the temporal pursuit of pleasure that dominates so much of the thoughts of people in this country. Father, we pray that people would, be, would respond to this wake-up call and these various wake-up calls that you send our way, that each time there's a crisis, a catastrophe, it's an opportunity for us to stop, to reflect, to examine our own lives and take spiritual inventory to see that we have our, our priorities right, our focus correct, and that we are indeed living this life not for what we get out of it today in this world, but for our future and eternity. Father, we pray for those that are struggling so much to rescue lives, to uh, help people to try to bring order into this chaos. We pray that you'd guide and direct them, give those uh, civil leaders uh, wisdom and skill as they uh, seek to uh, resolve this situation and give them guidance. We pray for the pastors who know the truth and many believers who are in these situations that they might be strong to encourage others with the truth of your word that even when we're in the midst of chaos, you're still in control. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we might be comforted, encouraged, that we might also gain a greater understanding of how you work in history. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 19. It's tempting as we look at our study this evening. Our subject matter is the destruction of Sodom to make certain comparisons between the destruction of ancient Sodom on the shores of the Dead Sea and a modern Sodom at the delta of the Mississippi. But I'm not going to go there because I don't think the comparisons are accurate. I think there may be a case that God is getting the attention of this nation, but he is not specifically targeting uh, the Gulf Coast of the United States in order to uh, straighten out certain moral or spiritual problems that are endemic to that area. I mean, after all, this is part of the Bible Belt in the United States. 
But I think it is part of a pattern that we can observe in this nation over the last several years where God is allowing certain catastrophic things from the attack on this nation on our own soil on September 11, 2001, through the series of uh, hurricanes that struck last summer and early fall and also this summer to get people's attention that as we have studied so many times in, in relationship to Israel that in the Mosaic law God said that if they were obedient to him and in right relationship to him that it would have consequences in the realm of meteorology consequences in the realm of of uh, economics, consequences in the realm of agricultural productivity. And he also pointed out that if they were disobedient, there would be negative consequences in all of those areas. Now, we have to be careful because the United States is not a covenant nation with God. God did not enter into a contract with the United States in the same way he did with Israel. So when we look at those five uh, five cycles of discipline in Leviticus chapter 26, we can just see certain trends and patterns that may apply to us, but we can't take those five uh, series, those five cycles of divine discipline and apply them directly to us because we're not a party to that particular contract. So, But I do believe that God does work in the midst of history and through natural disasters in order to get the attention of people, and when a uh, when certain people, our people groups or cultures are in rebellion against him, then God uses natural disasters, among other things, including military conquest, to destroy that particular culture. And the best that we can do, I think, in the church age, because what we see throughout the church age is just cycles or trends of history, is to see situations like this and immediately use that as an opportunity to take stock of where we are spiritually. And that's where we are as a nation. We need to take stock of where we are spiritually. This nation has turned into a nation that imitates the paganism of Sodom, imitates the paganism of the Canaanites, imitates the paganism of ancient Israel during the time of the judges. It's a time of moral relativism when everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes and the Word of God is fine and okay as long as it is convenient and comfortable and doesn't challenge my life too deeply or too profoundly. And that is true even for some of the most uh, devout believers. It is a challenge in any age to conform our thinking to the Word of God. And it is even more so when we are products of a pagan culture. And that is something we see illustrated in Genesis 19. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Genesis 19 and just start working our way through this episode involving the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we've seen already in terms of our study that this is part of an overall sort of subsection in the life of uh, Abraham. It started in chapter 18 with the arrival of three visitors. These three visitors included the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ and two angels. And that's described in... uh, Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, we see that Abraham saw them coming. He ran to greet them. He invited them in. He went out and literally killed the fatted calf and prepared a banquet, a feast for them. Uh, they rested. He, he took care of their physical needs. 
And then in the second section of that chapter, in verses 9 through 15, the Lord announces the birth of Isaac, that it would be about the same time the next year that Isaac would be born. And he reminds Abraham and Sarah that nothing is impossible for the Lord. And then there is uh, late afternoon departure, and the two, quote, men, unquote, who are in reality angels, which we discover in 19.1, depart, and God decides to let Abraham in on what is about to occur in Sodom. It is a test for Abraham, as we saw, to see if he's grace-oriented, if he really is going to demonstrate a love for Lot and intercede for Lot, and that's the key idea in verses 16 down through 33 is Abraham's intercession. But at the very core of those verses lies the theological principle of the righteousness and the justice of God. And when God's righteousness is violated, then His justice condemns, His justice judges man. But when we are aligned with God's righteousness, then there is blessing. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. And that's at the core of Abraham's negotiation. He goes through this this process where he says, well, Lord, if there's uh, 60 righteous people there, will you still destroy the city? God says, well, no. Well, if there's 55, and if there's 50, he works his way all the way down until he gets to 10, And then the Lord really doesn't answer him, he just moves on. And we have the illustration of the answer in chapter 19. Apparently, if there's fewer than ten, God's going to uh, take them out and then destroy the rest. So we come to uh, chapter 19, and we see this illustration of how God's righteousness judges men in the midst of history. Now, this chapter begins with an introduction to to Lot at the gate of Sodom. In 19.1 we read, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So they, how they traveled there, if they walked the whole way or just dematerialized and rematerialized, we don't know. But they, they left late in the afternoon and it's a, it's a good day's walk from Hebron over to the uh, area of the Dead Sea where Sodom was located, and so it would have taken them more than just a couple of hours. So their mode of transportation was angelic rather than human. But when they appear, they appear as human beings. They appear as men. They have all the characteristics, once again, of physical material bodies. And they come to Sodom in the evening, and we, are, we see Lot sitting outside and at the gate of Sodom. Now, that is significant because that tells us that Lot has a position of respect in the society of Sodom. He is well respected. He is looked up to. The judges, the city council met at the gates of the city. So if you wanted to go present a case, you wanted to go to a municipal court, you wanted to go present a case before the city council of of any village or city or town in the ancient world, then you went to the gate. That's where the elders of the city sat, and that's where you would have uh, cases adjudicated and decisions made and things of that nature. So the fact that Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom doesn't mean he's just out there for, to observe the sun go down. He is out there in, in a position of authority, which means he has become totally assimilated into the society and the culture of Sodom. Now, we have to 
remind ourselves that Lot is a believer. Lot is an Old Testament believer, though he has totally compromised his spiritual life with the uh, cosmic thinking, the worldly thinking that characterized the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities, the five cities uh, that were located around the south uh, eastern shore of the Dead Sea. We have to be reminded of the fact that even uh, carnal believers, even believers can imitate unbelievers, and their life may not appear to be any different from an unbeliever. And so Sodom has assimilated himself. Now, we're going to see that that is not all there is to that story. He is uncomfortable there, but he has made himself comfortable, but at some level there's still a level of, of discomfort. So the two angels appear, and Lot saw them. He rose to meet them, showing that he's gracious, he's hospitable. Uh, if you remember back in Genesis 14, he had a problem with generosity and hospitality, but he is demonstrating that here, which shows that even unbelievers can have good manners, even unbelievers can be socially acceptable, even unbelievers can be very attractive, uh, and even carnal believers, though they're out of fellowship, can have very positive characteristics. So Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, he bowed himself with his face to the ground, which was a typical ancient uh, Near Eastern custom in greeting someone of, of prestige. So it shows that he recognizes that they have some uh, position. Here on this slide we have a location of Sodom. Now, for a long time it was thought that Sodom was located over here on the southwestern shore. But in the early part of the 20th century, one of the most uh, well-known biblical archaeologists by the name of William uh, Albright, W.F. Albright, who was at Johns Hopkins University, uh, located Sodom along this southwestern shore here. There's a series of wadis that go into a wadi is a dried riverbed that when it rains, then it fills up with water. Uh, It's what we call an intermittent stream out in central Texas. But you have wadis, five five or six wadis along this southwestern coast, and that's where they had uh, these five cities were located. It was near a water source, and they were right on the uh, beautiful shore of the Dead Sea. Now, it's not that beautiful today, but remember the reasons that Lot moved there was because Abraham gave him this option. Now, of all the places around that you see, you take your pick where you want to go. And he said, well, I think I'll pick uh, Sodom. That looks like the most beautiful, the most attractive area. I mean, this is down on the Riviera of the ancient world. This is an area that was attractive to uh, people who were affluent. Remember, Lot was extremely wealthy. He wasn't quite as wealthy as Abraham, but he was very wealthy. That's why they had that separation. If you remember back in the 14th chapter, they came after returning from Egypt. They had both accumulated uh, livestock. They had accumulated servants, and there wasn't enough uh, room in the land to support both of them. And so their rivalry developed between uh, Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen. So Abraham said, okay, let's put an end to this. You pick your area and I'll pick mine and we'll separate. And so Lot chose the most beautiful. And the text in chapter 14 says that it was well watered. Now that's not what you see today. So that indicates that something radical happened, something cataclysmic happened that changed the uh, changed the climate, that changed the topography of this 
uh, of this particular area. We know from uh, what Albright discovered was that there was an uh, Arab village over here called Bab Ed, Ed Dra. That's spelled B-A-B. E-D-H hyphen, capital D-H-R-A, Bob Edra. And at Bob Edra, there's indications that it was a very large populated area. And it's also evident that it was a very affluent area. It was very wealthy. There are, uh, we know some of this because there were very large uh, cemeteries there. There's a large uh, Canaanite temple that was highly decorated. All of this indicates that this was a wealthy, affluent area. He decided, Lot decided he wanted to go down to River Oaks. And uh, so he's down at the, uh, where all the uh, best housing was, where all the most beautiful scenery was, and he's enjoying himself. Which is, it's the same way today. Once people get some affluence, they like to go and buy real estate down on the Riviera, down on the coast, in places like Gulfport, Gulf Shores, Mississippi. And uh, so you can have few problems that come up when you're in, in uh, places like that, as we've seen. So it's just evidence that, that, that uh, this was a very uh, large populated area. Furthermore, one of the things they discovered, uh, that the archaeologists discovered as they went into this area, is that the houses are all burned, they, they're, but they're burned from the inside out. And as they dug down and as they uh, explored and evaluated and investigated this, what they discovered was that the roofs on these houses were caught on fire, and then the roofs collapsed into the interior of the house, and then the house burned from the inside out, which fits the scenario that we have of the destruction of Sodom, that God rained down fire and brimstone. That would land on the roofs, burn up the roofs, and they would collapse, and the area was destroyed. So this is the area where Sodom was located. Now, as the angels encounter Lot, he says to them, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. See, he knows something. He understands the culture of Sodom, and he doesn't want these strangers to spend the night in the town square. And he invites them into his house. He's going to be very hospitable. He's going to wash their feet. And um, he says, Then I'll take care of you. You spend the night, I'll feed you. And, and then you can rise early and go on your way. And they objected. They said, No, we're going to stay in the, in the town square. Now, why do you think they said that? Well, first of all, they're, I think they're testing Lot to see if he's really being, being uh, genuine and if he's really being hospitable. And secondly, they're there perhaps to investigate the nature of the culture and to demonstrate the perversity and the degradation of the sodomite culture. But he continues to uh, insist that they come in to uh, and stay with him. Now, as we look at the culture of Sodom, we have to recognize that it is portrayed here as the as the lowest point of pagan culture, of Canaanite culture at that day. It, uh, it is a city that is dominated by sexual licentiousness and perversity. Prime, and it's not just homosexuality. I mean, these folks just don't care how they're going to get their sexual pleasure. We often focus on the homosexual nature of this encounter, which is definitely there, and this is where we get our English word sodomy, which is the technical term to describe homosexual uh, relations. 
But we have to understand that from this point throughout the Scripture, the Bible portrays homosexuality as a sin. It is pictured as, in relative terms, it is pictured as a sin of the, one of the sins of the worst kind. Now, we all recognize that all sin violates the character of God and the righteousness of God, whether it's a, a sin of lying, a mental attitude, sin of arrogance, whatever it may be. But different sins have different social consequences, and different sins affect those around us in different ways. And it is clear from Romans chapter 1 that homosexuality is viewed by God as uh, part of his judgment on a culture. So it is not just another sin. There are certain consequences to it that are devastating to a society. Now, it is one of a category of sexual sins that would also include adultery and fornication, but it's a, a more extreme nature. It would be classified along with bestiality, pedophilia, sadomasochism, and other gross sins of that nature, and they are considered more heinous because of their social consequences. We have to remember, and we'll get into this more next time, that no one is born a homosexual, no one is born a lesbian, any more than they're born an adulterer or a liar or a gossip or any other sin. You know, we're all born sinners, and we have certain trends of our sin nature. And when the restraints to sin, the social restraints to sin, are removed because there's no uh, social discipline, then people give rein, give free rein to the uh, lust patterns of their own sin nature. And so this is manifested in a number of different ways. Now, as Christians, we have to look at this, and even though homosexuality and some of these other sexual sins, including pedophilia, uh, may be extremely abhorrent to us, all sin is abhorrent to God. But God's grace is so great that He provided a Savior who paid the penalty for every single sin. And I think it's important that when we are dealing with people, we're witnessing to folks that may be guilty of these sins, this may be their particular area of weakness, that we do not treat these as some sort of supra-category of sin that, that demands a little extra grace from God or something of that nature. Uh, every one of us is a sinner and in need of salvation and in need of the work of Christ on the cross, and he paid for the sins of homosexuality, lesbianism, gossip, maligning, anger, resentment, bitterness. All of these sins were all paid for on the cross, and we have to communicate that when we are ministering to those who have problems in this particular area. And we'll get into some of that next time because there's a number of myths that are constantly being promoted today regarding homosexuality. And it comes across in the news media in lots of, lots of ways. In fact, uh, just last week I was watching uh, a news program and two uh, commentators were talking about the sin of, uh, or not the sin, but they were just talking about the crime of, of sexual abuse and pedophilia. And one of them just in the midst of a, of a whole paragraph just included the sentence that, well, you know, homosexual, homosexuals are born that way and they can't change. And just, it was never challenged. It was just there. And this has become normal and accepted in our society that uh, 
homosexuals are born that way. Well, in some sense they are. Adulterers are born that way and gossips are born that way because that's the trend of their sin nature. But that doesn't justify, that doesn't alleviate responsibility, and that doesn't mean that they have to fulfill those, tempta- those, uh, those lust patterns and those drives that may be part of their own sin nature. Now, when a culture deteriorates so much that it removes restraint from these sins that have tremendous social consequences, then that culture is already on the path to self-destruction. And it becomes necessary in the plan of God at times to remove that culture. Now, I believe that there are many cultures in history that are much worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. So why is it that God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, we have to understand the role of Sodom and Gomorrah in terms of their location and in terms of God's plan for Israel. And God is removing Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain because he is protecting Abraham and Abraham's progeny from the influence of this extreme uh, sexual licentiousness and this sexual antinomianism. He's going to do the same thing in another 400 years when he brings the Israelites back from Egypt and they are to completely annihilate the Canaanite culture, lock, stock, and barrel. So there's a reason for that. Now, when we come to the United States or we go to uh, Rome or we look at ancient Greece or any of these other uh, c- cultures that have deteriorated into uh, tremendous de- sexual deviancy over the centuries, we ask, well, why didn't God punish them? In fact, it's often said in somewhat of a joking manner that if God doesn't do something to San Francisco soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But that betrays a failure to understand the theological spiritual reasons, uh, and that's related to the Abrahamic covenant. So it's necessary for God to take Sodom and Gomorrah out in order to protect the, ver- the, the seed of Abraham as it was developing. Okay, so we see God in grace sending these angels to accomplish the mission to rescue Lot. Abraham is negotiated for Lot, and so he sends the angels, and uh, they respond to his hospitality. They enter his house. He makes a feast for them, uh, bakes unleavened bread, and they eat. He feeds them well. It reminds us of how Abraham treated the angels in the previous chapter. And then we come to the fourth verse. Fourth verse we read, uh, Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. Now I want you to notice how that is uh, belabored in the text. And it talks about the fact that before they lay down, before bedtime, so darkness has already come, and darkness is often a shroud for the sinful activities of man, the men of the city, and then it clarifies that, the men of Sodom. So it's talking about the male's citizenry. And then it's not just the homosexuals in Sodom. It's not just the folks from down on Montrose that are coming and knocking on the door. He goes on to say it is both old and young. All the people from every quarter, the wealthy, the poor, the middle class, 
I mean, this demonstrates that this perversity has permeated every level of Sodom's culture. All the people from every quarter surround the house. There's a lot of folks out there. This is, there's a huge crowd surrounding the house, and they start beating on the door. Now, let's stop a minute before we go any further and just think about what's about to happen and think about Lot. And we, have, uh, we don't have to guess at this because we have a New Testament commentary provided by Peter under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit to tell us what is going on in Lot's soul. So you can hold your place there or just look at the screen. Let's shift over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and following. Now the interesting thing about 2 Peter is that Peter is demonstrating in the second and the third chapter, he's demonstrating the righteousness and the justice of God in condemning and judging man for sin. And he's laying out an argument where he's saying that God has clearly judged the human race in cataclysmic judgments several times in the past, and so we can know with certainty that God will eventually judge the human race in a cataclysm in the future, and we need to be ready. That's where all this is going. It starts in the second chapter and goes down through the third chapter. And he focuses on these key cataclysmic judgments, uh, beginning in verse 4. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, that, of course, refers to the uh, uh, sons of God, the angels, the demons, who uh, took on human form, human flesh, and... uh, uh, interbred with the with the daughters of men in Genesis 6, 3 and following. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to uh, hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. That refers to those angels who were involved in that genetic attack on the human race in Genesis 6. So that's one judgment. Second judgment's mentioned in verse 5. And, God, and if God did not, see this is a first class condition, if God did not, and he, he didn't spare, uh, and if God did not spare the ancient world, uh, but saved Noah, one of eight, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So here's our second illustration, that God interferes with human history and He judges the sinfulness of man. And then the third illustration is from Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction. See, this whole episode, liberals come along and say, well, this was just some sort of legend that was made up in order to give a rationale to the origin of the Moabites and the Ammonites and to give uh, sort of a justification for the Jews in going in to annihilate the Canaanites. But if it's not a true historical happening, then everything that, that Peter says uh, from verse 6 on is... is uh, uh, loses its validity because Peter treats the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah as a historical event that is a foundation for understanding an important spiritual doctrine related to the church age. And so he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah, that God judged them, turned the cities into ashes, condemned them to, to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. You see, if it didn't really happen, it's not an example. And his point is that, that we have to pay attention to 
Genesis 19 because it shows a divine pattern on judgment for certain social sins. Now, the word that's translated ungodly is a Greek word, asabes. Now, that a at the beginning is what's called an alpha privative. That means it's the, it's the alpha in the first letter. And it's like the English uh, un or un. It's a, it's a negative, and the root is that word sebase, S-E-B-E-S. Now, you're going to see that in another word, and that's the word eusebea. The E-U prefix on eusebea means uh, well or good or beneficial, and so the word eusebea has to do with, uh, it's often translated godliness, but it has to do with our positive spiritual growth. So, ah. Uh, Sebase is that which is ungodly, that which uh, describes people who have no spiritual life or relationship with God. A person who actively practices that which is the opposite of uh, biblical spirituality. And so they are involved in extreme immorality is an extremely strong word for uh, sexual perversion and immorality. So God judged them as an example to those who would uh, be willing to give in and allow their sin nature just to go free reign in the area of sexual sin. Uh, verse 7, and But God delivered righteous Lot. This is the uh, grace of God. He delivered righteous Lot. And three times in Second Peter 2, Lot is described as righteous. Now, he's not righteous in terms of his, of his personal morality. He is not righteous in terms of his experiential morality. It's very clear that one of the key lessons in Genesis 19 is that when, you, when we as believers become so immersed in the values of the cosmic system around us that it destroys our own spiritual life and we're more concerned about the things of the world than we are the eternal realities of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lot is righteous because he has positional righteousness. So God in his grace delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the licentious conduct of the wicked. Now that's interesting because Lot doesn't appear to be someone who is oppressed. He's living there in that culture. He's assimilated. He's very happy uh, living there, he's enjoying all the pleasures, all the benefits, all the wonderful details of life that the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah has to offer. I mean, this is an extremely uh, affluent society for its times. It's very comfortable. He's enjoying all the benefits of their culture, uh, and, and he, he likes that. And he's willing to give up his walk with the Lord in order to enjoy all of this. Now, the word oppress is the Greek word katapaneo. And it means to be vexed or weary, to be oppressed or afflicted. It's a parallel to a word we'll see in the next verse, basanizo. And it means that at, at, at a level in his soul, there's a conflict going on. Because he's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and he knows the truth, even though he's living there and he's enjoying it, when it's in those wee hours of the morning and he's lying in his bed awake looking up at the ceiling, he knows he shouldn't be there. And that's a reality, I believe, for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's a comfort sometimes to parents who wonder what in the world has happened to their children. 
because they just seem to be negative to the Lord, negative to spiritual things. But the reality is, if you are a child of God, you are not going to be able to just live immersed in a pagan culture without the Holy Spirit. I know Lot did not have the Holy Spirit, but there were other factors at work in the Old Testament spiritual life. But today with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to be convicting them of sin. They are not going to just be able uh, to relax. Lot was oppressed by the licentious conduct of the wicked. This is the Greek word asogeia, which indicates an extreme form of licentiousness. Almost, in some cases, it has the idea of brutality. It indicates that all, all, uh, whole, uh, all restraints are removed. There's extreme lasciviousness, licentiousness, debauchery, sexual excess. There's an absence of all restraint. And they are called the wicked. This is the Greek word athesmos. They're lawless, licentious, unprincipled, amoral men. And so Lot is living in the midst of this uh, completely perverted culture and society, and he's trying to find some level, some level of comfort. But he's uh, tormented to some degree. In verse 8 we read, For that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul. Those, that's the second and third time there's a mention of righteousness. So it's his position in, in positional righteousness in the Old Testament. Uh, he can't fully relax and be comfortable in that, in that culture. The word there translated tormented is that word I mentioned a minute ago, basanizo, and it means to be tortured, to be afflicted with pain, to be harassed internally. And so there, he, he just can't fully relax inside this culture, even though he is fully attracted to it. There's tr- tremendous uh, insight into the psychology of the believer who is living in rank carnality. And then in verse 9 we read, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of testing and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And the point is that we get from Second Peter is that the application from Genesis 19 is that God can deliver the righteous no matter what circumstances you're in, no matter how far you have fallen into into whatever the sin is that you've given yourself over to, there is the grace of God that can meet you where you are, and there can be recovery. And if you are a homosexual, you can come out of homosexuality. You can change by the grace of God and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and you can have a restoration of heterosexual uh, values and desires. And that applies to any sin that is in our life, that under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and the power of God's Word, there can be a radical transformation. Now, we live in a world today when nobody wants to believe that, and that's why I want to address this whole issue. You, uh, in a little more detail next week, but there are numerous ministries that exist today by former homosexuals. I got to know uh, one individual last year. I was at a uh, conference in the D.C. area about just about a year ago and met a man who has been married now for 14 years, and he has, uh, I think he has two children, and he has a an international ministry that has grown out of his own experience because he was completely immersed from the time of uh, probably not long after after uh, 
uh, adolescence where he has been completely immersed in a homosexual lifestyle, lived with several men, had, you know, hundreds of partners, the whole uh, horrible, torrid scenario, and yet it's the grace of God that caused a complete change in his life. And that is not a message that we hear from the news media or the psychologists of today. Actually, there are many who do give that message, but it is ignored by the media. In fact, what, what we'll discover as we get into some of the details next week is that the homosexual lifestyle is not one that's even recommended by most psychologists, but the American Psychiatric Association has been basically terrorized by the uh, political activism of the homosexual lobby so that they had to remove homosexuality from the uh, list of of uh, mental diseases back in the uh, early 70s, and uh, ever since then they have to treat it as if it's just another normal orientation. But that's all a a result of just uh, bullying by the homosexual lobby. What we see here is that God knows how to deliver uh, anyone, specifically the application is he knows how to deliver Lot and rescues Lot from the midst of the scenario. Now, Back to Genesis 19. Genesis 19. In verses 4 through 11, we see the sexual assault that occurs, or the attempted sexual assault, on the angels. In verses 4 through 5, we see the men of Sodom, all of them, young and old, from every walk of life, uh, surround Lot's home, start beating on the door in order to have him turn these visitors out. What a sense of hospitality they have, and they want the, these men to come out so that they can, literal, literally the text says, so that they can know them. It's a Hebrew euphemism for sexual uh, relations. So Lot goes out, Lot, Lot uh, slips out the front door and tr- begins to negotiate with them. It sort of reminds us of the negotiation that Abraham had with God in the previous chapter, but this is a totally different kind of negotiation. And he says, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. And the Hebrew verb here for wickedly, if I can find a, here we go, is the Hebrew verb ra Ah, And this is normally translated to do evil. And the Bible uses this word ra'ah as a synonym for the word for sin, except it deals with more extreme forms of overt sin. In, the, uh, in a vast number of passages in the Old Testament, the word evil relates to idolatry. And you see it over and over again as you read through the passages dealing with uh, uh, the kings in the northern kingdom that so-and-so followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, and acted and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so it's specifically related there to uh, religious idolatry. So Lot says to them, Please, my brethren, do not act in an evil way. So it is clear that God labels homosexuality as a sin. It is evil. 
And evil is defined in terms of what people do, not in terms of their personality. I can't tell you how many times I get upset when I'm watching the evening news and there's the story about some, some kid down the street who got caught uh, killing a couple of people or raping uh, someone. And so they go interview his family and neighbors and they say, but he's such a nice person. He's so good. He's really not, he's really not bad. Well, the Bible defines bad in terms of what you do, not in terms of your lovely personality. So if you commit certain sins, you are evil, you are wicked. If you're a murderer, you're evil. It doesn't matter how wonderful and nice and helpful you are in other situations. You are evil by virtue of what you do. So now Lot shows that he has completely absorbed the values of the pagan culture around him. In verse 7, he says, Please, my brethren, don't do so evilly. See, I have two daughters over here who have not known a man. I've got two virgin daughters. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Now, isn't this a wonderful protective father? This is another characteristic of paganism, is that men no longer protect women and that the parents are no longer functioning as protectors of children. So Lot is going to bargain with his virgin daughters. Another thing we see here is that physical abuse becomes normative and acceptable in a pagan society. Now, in verses 9 through 11, we see another characteristic of paganism, and that is the self-righteousness of moral degeneracy. How's that for a juxtaposition of terms? The self-righteousness of moral degeneracy. And we see this in our own society. Whenever anyone stands up for the truth and the absolutes of Scripture, the hatred, the venom, the anger that comes at them from the culture at large is just horrendous. And sometimes I just sit back and wonder, where does all this... Uh, venom come from that is directed at our president. And it's because he takes a stand for absolutes. Now, we may agree or disagree with this policy or that policy or some other policy, but he is a man, in contrast to his predecessor, who takes a consistent stand for moral absolutes, and those on the liberal left just hate him for it because it prevents them from following their own agenda. And that's what we see in verse 9. The, the Sodomites, after Lot has tried to bargain with the daughter, says, Stand back, get out of the way. Look at this one. He came here to stay a while. He's an outsider. He's just a visitor. And he now acts as our judge. See, he's not judging them at all. He's trying to, to barter with them. And in, in the process, he's compromising his own family. But they have twisted the whole situation. See, he's just trying to judge us. He's condemning us. Now, we'll deal with you, with you worse than with them. So they pressed hard, and the idea here is they pushed hard. They pushed up against him. They're put, trying to uh, force their way into the house. They almost break the door down, and he's rescued because the angels reach out and they, with their hands. And I find it interesting to notice the physical descriptions of the angels here. I mean, they're, they're very uh, uh, human-like. They reach out with their hand, and they grab him, and they pull him inside and shut the door. And then the angels begin to warn Lot. 
Well, we're running out of time, so we're not going to get through this whole chapter tonight as I had anticipated, but I want to run through a couple of principles related to the characteristics of paganism. The first is that sexual degradation and perversion becomes commonplace and socially acceptable in a pagan culture. The more a culture is divorced from the absolutes of the scripture, the more sexual deviancy becomes normal and it becomes accepted. And the more it becomes normal and accepted, the more uh, accustomed even believers become. Now, they may not be totally comfortable with it, but let me suggest that you no longer experience the same level of shame and embarrassment when certain things are talked about on TV and in the news that you did when it first came up. I mean, there are words uh, that refer to certain parts of male and female anatomy that are frequently discussed now on the evening news and in the afternoon on talk shows that that I never heard when I was growing up. And if, if th- that discussion had occurred while my mother was in the room, I think she would have just crawled right under a wheelchair. You know, she would not have handled that very well at all. In fact, I remember one time, I won't mention what it was, but somebody mentioned something on Johnny Carson, and my mother turned to me and asked me, said, what is that? And I just about crawled under the sofa. She had no idea what she was asking me, and if she had known, she would have been embarrassed. But see, we've come a long way from the late 60s and early 70s. And we hear, we, we talk about all of these different things now. We hear about it in, on television. We hear about it on the radio It's and in, in, in everything that we read. And we become uh, calloused and desensitized to the shame of these acts and actions that are taking place in our culture. So this is what happens under paganism. Sexual degradation, perversion become commonplace and socially acceptable. And as a result of this, there is an increase in violence. I haven't figured this out. My mind just doesn't work this way. But why is it that the more degraded we become, the more there is an increase in this relationship between violence and pain and sexual pleasure? I just can't figure this out, this rise of sadomasochism and other things. And and the abuse of women in order to gain some level of sexual pleasure. So women are no longer protected. In fact, abuse increases. Now, people may say, well, we just know more about it today. There's just more exposure. I don't think so. I think there's more of it. It, 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 We are talking about it more, and it's more out in the open, and there's more discussion, and that's true. But 150 years ago, this wasn't happening at the same level that it's happening today. Because people 150 years ago had their actions controlled by an understanding of biblical absolutes and they restrained themselves and exercised self-discipline. Now, you had uh, exceptions to this, of course. That's because you have unbelievers and, and pagans in the society. So one characteristic of paganism, or a second characteristic, is that women are no longer protected. They're no longer valued. And it flows out of a lack of respect for human life that men and women are equally created in the image and the likeness of God. Fourth, there's a total breakdown as a result of that of role distinctions. Now think about this. It isn't, it, it, I mean, let me rephrase that. It's no coincidence 
that at the same time that you have the rise of radical feminism in America, which has at its core the idea that uh, there's total and complete interchangeability between men and women at the workplace, and the rise of homosexuality among men and women, which says the same thing sexually, that men and women are completely interchangeable as sexual partners. It doesn't matter whether my sexual partner is a man or a woman, just as long as I have my gratification. So there is a breakdown of role distinctions, and there's um, there's evidence that's... I'm, that's a typo there. There's evidence in women assuming male authority positions. That's not men assuming male authority positions, but women assuming male authority positions and a failure of male leadership in the culture. And so women want to assume male authority positions such as a pastor or they take male positions in terms of bisexuality. All of this reflects a breakdown in the culture because we no longer understand the role of men and women as image bearers and as God created them. And so women become sex objects. We saw that last week in our study in Judges chapter 19. And men become tyrannical and abusers, and it leads to a complete breakdown of the family, of a marriage and of the family, and eventually uh, society. So we have to recognize that there are these characteristics of paganism, and the more evident they become, they become the more uh, fragmented the society or the culture becomes, and it's on the path to self-destruction. Now, we'll just stop here at verse 11, as uh, Lot is protected by the angels who strike uh, the crowd, the uh, aggressors, with blindness, and... We'll come back and start up in verse 12. We'll finish up this episode, and then we'll come back and do an application in terms of uh, homosexuality and culture. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you. You're a God of grace and that you can overcome any problem, any difficulty in life, and that every sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. Therefore, uh, there is no sin in a soteriological sense that is not paid for. There is no sin in a sanctification sense that cannot be overcome and dealt with on the basis of God the Holy Spirit and on the basis of your word. Father, we pray that you would help us as a body of believers to understand these issues as they affect a society, as they affect a culture, and that you would also help us to understand uh, how your grace uh, is provided for everyone no matter what their uh, sins may be. And, Father, we pray that we may be uh, continue to be a salt, uh, to function as salt in this society. And despite all the things that are happening that threaten the stability of this country economically, uh, physically in terms of the storms, and uh, militarily in terms of our, our security and the threat of terrorism, we know that our real security lies in you. And we just pray, continue to pray for our nation that there would be a heed to these wake-up calls and a recognition that that's what they are and that there would be a a positive response to your word in this country. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.